Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're talking about seed ecology, but in the context of restoration and conservation. And joining us to talk about this is Dr. Marcello Davides. As you're going to hear, Dr. Davidis is extremely passionate about using science to inform plant conservation and ecosystem restoration, and you really can't do that without understanding the intricacies of seeds, what it takes to store them, if they can even be stored, and how do they germinate and grow. This is really important work because if you can't get plants to reproduce in situ where you have placed them, then all you have is a pretty garden, not a functioning ecosystem. So I don't want to keep you from it any longer. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Davidis. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Marcello Davidis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here. How about we start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for actually, thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, it's an honor to be here. So um, I am currently a postdoctoral research associate at the Chicago Botanic Garden, and I've been working with seeds, specifically seeds of native plants and like seed biology, seed conservation, plants reintroductions since uh, I think 2008. Uh, like that but um i i didn't just uh focus focused on biological or ecological aspect of seeds uh, i had amazing opportunities through my career to also work on uh different aspects of conservation which are equally important uh, like stakeholder engagement native seed policy native seed certification when i was back in europe and I had the opportunity to do something like, uh, you know, on those aspects uh, here in, in the U.S. as well. But yes, I'm not like a pure uh, biologist. Uh, I have a few different hats in the conservation scenario. That's yeah. re- really exciting and, and vital to have people like you on our side of the fence, right? Because, you know, oftentimes people get into sciences, they just kind of want to do their thing or they go into restaurant, you know, they go one avenue, but to be able to combine that makes a way more informed person, a way more informed professional and someone that can, you know, really affect change in a big way. But all of this really seems to be centered around seeds and plants. What made you go that route with it? What got you interested in seeds and plants in the first place? Uh, I, you know, when I was like a, a kid, I was very interested in nature and probably I was very interested in like something very like a li- living organisms very different from me. So mm. as that's why plants got my uh, interest and attention. And, and that's why I pursued that route of becoming a plant uh, ecologist and conservationist. 
And yeah, and also, you know, I think my goal since the beginning was to make, to do conservation, to be a conservationist and to become a leader. Hopefully one day I will become a leader in conservation. But then I understood that uh, in order to make conservation in the right way, we need to understand the organisms that we want to protect or preserve or to uh, help thriving. So that's why that's why I went into, you know, I started my studies in plant biology and conservation biology. And uh, what you said, it's totally right, right? That in order to, you know, make conservation, we need to understand different different points of view. And that's something that I have been learning. You never stop learning, right? Yeah. And uh, of, of course, I will <laughs> stop learning. And that's something that I've learned very, very much, especially in these past two years uh, at the Chicago Botanic Garden. I'm working in an amazing research group led by doctors Andrea Kramer and Kay Havens. And they really made me understand how important it is to look from also the land management perspective. And so that we find tangible and practical applications to our research. And the results of our research are going to really going to help, you know, make some changes in the way we manage uh, and and the way we relate to natural resources. That is excellent to hear. And I mirror your interest in things that are very alien and different than us. And plants really fill that gap in a big way. But it's encouraging to know that you are, you know, you and your team, your colleagues are really approaching this from a a, a management perspective, because, you know, as much as I am all for science for the sake of science and discovery and understanding our world around us, when it comes to conservation, restoration, that sort of stuff, these things have to be implemented in some form or another. So always having that sort of in the backdrop, kind of guiding what you're doing is very encouraging to hear from a scientific standpoint uh, to try and get these things implemented, whether that's at the uh, sort of policy level or directly what we do on the ground with management and restoration. But in that context, I mean, when you think about what it takes to do this science, what it takes to kind of bring ecosystems back, preserve species, you kind of have to know something about them. Mm-hmm. And one aspect of your work that really excites me is is this admission sort of that we know very little about most species, especially when it comes to, you know, what we would consider more esoteric or obscure species of plants. Uh, would you agree there's a ton of unknowns out there, especially when it comes to germination and knowing what to do with seeds, even if you have them? Yes, yes, there is so much that we still have to figure out, understand about seeds and germination and how plants regenerate themselves, especially, you know, plants, as many other living organisms, uh, they are able, they're plastic, able to adapt uh, even to seasonal fluctuations of environmental conditions. So even if sometimes you study the germination of the plant species from seeds you have collected one year, you might find a slightly different trend or slightly different pattern the year after, maybe because seeds were produced under slightly different conditions. Um, That's something that I am studying right now on uh, three pieces of violets native west. And I'm studying 
how the genetic and how the environment control the dormancy and germination requirements. Whew, yeah, and it's a cool group to be doing that in because violets are, you know, some of them are ubiquitous, others are extremely rare, and a lot of that can probably start at the seed stage. Um, but when you put this in the greater context of like, why do we need to know this? Well, if you want to put plants back on the landscape or ensure that their populations continue, regardless of which way you attack this, you kind of have to figure out what cues that initial germination phase. And I really like that you pointed out this plasticity aspect of it and sort of what the environment can do. And so, yeah, this idea of coming up with like a recipe that works in all scenarios, that's difficult to do. And and oftentimes I would assume uh, you can correct me on this. It's It's out of reach for a lot of species. Yeah, 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 that's correct. And that's called, uh, in plant ecology, we call that a bad hedging strategy. Hmm. And I think in English, you say when you don't put all your eggs in one basket, that's kind of like the same concept. Plant species, especially inhabiting habitats or environments with uh, fluctuating or let's say unstable environmental conditions, uh, so kind of like unpredictable conditions uh, or very like marked yearly fluctuations, uh, they produce seeds with slightly different requirements to break their dormancy uh, so that they don't germinate all at once. Uh, and ma- many of these seeds can stay dormant uh, in the soil for maybe two, maybe three, maybe four years uh, and germinate different years uh, so that even if the environmental conditions are not exactly the same every year, there is always a chance for that plant population to regenerate. It, it Dormancy is fascinating because it's, it's hard to put that in a context that like an animal can relate to, like sitting there waiting, hedging your bets until maybe, like you said, these conditions present themselves. But it's it's fascinating from a scientific standpoint, but also kind of challenging, but maybe even beneficial to restoration. Say if a seed bank is present and suddenly the land is no longer in cultivation, you can now send it back and maybe you'll get some surprises in the process. But teasing that out is its own process. So why why violets to try to start to understand this? Was it just convenience or is there a deeper kind of reason that you might be considering violets for the specific work you're, you're, you're doing right now? So uh, violets here in the Midwest are pretty sought after in restoration, are um, highly of highly restoration and conservation interest uh, for few reasons, and one of the main reasons is that they are the host plant of an endangered butterfly, which is the regal fritillary butterfly. Ooh. It's I think it's ranked at vulnerable, okay. so. Uh, it's not the highest uh, rank of threat or, you know, probability of extinction, but still they have estimated that there is a very, very little proportion of the original, you know, global population of this fly. And violets are the uh, host plant for the larvae of this butterfly. And so they're very, very important. At the same time, uh, a lot of like restoration practitioners here in the Midwest uh, who have tried to reintroduce in prairie restorations, uh, these violet species uh, have found a few issues or a few challenges uh, in the way that these violets have not germinated with high rates. Uh, 
when they were seeded in, in restoration sites or when they germinated, then the plants or the seedlings were not establishing with high success rates. So there are a few, let's say, I call them challenges, but I think <laughs> them like the mysteries of the violets that we have to solve or we have to clarify. Yeah. or understand it's it's all a matter of un- understanding because uh you know they're just doing you know their job matter of us understanding what you know like the restoration site has really has all the biotic and abiotic conditions uh, for these plants to germinate establish and thrive as uh, as a persistent population so that's something that on the side of my germination experiments in the lab at the Chicago Botanic Garden, I'm also doing some reintroduction trials, uh, the Kankakee Sands Preserve. Oh, nice. Which is an amazing prairie restoration between Indiana and Illinois. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to, you know, understand about the biology and ecology of these plants both from, you know, a very controlled perspective in the lab, but also looking at some responses in terms of like germination and survival in the wild. Hmm. What an interesting conundrum. And I'm glad you framed it as a mystery because that makes it kind of exciting instead of like banging your head against the wall every week if the data doesn't come in. That's, that's That's how we should, I think, look at these challenges, right? Not as problems actually it's uh it's very exciting to to learn every day we learn so much more about you know the biology of other organisms right i mean you're filling in chapters to the tree of life and every little bit of natural history we understand about a species the better we can do for it in the long run and I'm, I'm so happy to hear this conversation based in the idea of germination, because when you hear restoration, you're like, oh, these seeds aren't germinating. They're not working. Let's just plant adults and go from there. And it's fine. I mean, an adult plant might establish, do well, grow, flower over time. But if you can't get seeds to actually germinate at that site, what did you do? You made a pretty garden, but you're not having a thriving, functioning population, right? I mean, you have to have that germination part to have functioning populations. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And another way that we are looking at this, which one is the stage that acts as a bottleneck in the restoration or reintroduction process? So you're totally right. If, you're, if your aim is to have like a pretty garden and to plant every, every year new adult plants, uh, that's one goal, but it's not really what we want to do in you know conservation and restoration. Our goal is to reestablish self-sustainable and persistent populations of wild plants. And uh, also, you know, at some stage of the restoration, you want to make sure that you are also reintroducing uh, not just individual species, but also functions of, of the ecosystem. So you might at some point look at, you know, functional groups uh, and a very high level of species diversity. And so with your kind of interest and background in sort of the restoration application processes of this, I mean, I can imagine a scenario where you have a desired species list, you get your hands on the seeds, you know, 80% of them germinate and go on doing just fine. And you're like, we've done that. But for the remainder of those, where do you start to kind of 
figure out what you need to do to get the, to push your species list even further. I mean, how do you translate sort of, I guess, what you're learning in the context of, say, a violet to what happens in the real world? I mean, is it a, a scenario where sometimes you go, maybe this just isn't the site or you figure out something that happens pre-treatment? You know, where how do you kind of progress in a way that satisfies stakeholders or your interest in this in this particular chunk of land? That's a great question. And that's something also we are trying to figure out <laughs> with my research group. Because I guess, yeah, the pellets again are like a nice example of a species that, you know, you put it in the seed mix, it doesn't come out. And so then you might want to take that species, you know, do some research to understand what's going on. And, you know, we have been working on developing some kind of guidelines or roadmap uh, or a kind of like checklist to, to understand, you know, there are so many factors that can be responsible or involved uh, in one of these bottlenecks uh, that we have just talked about, like the germination stage or, you know, the seedling survival stage or the reproductive stage. You might become an adult, but maybe there is not the right pollinator in that state. So your reproduction is compromised or it doesn't happen at all. So we are actually, you know, working. That's a very like a great question, uh, uh, spot on question because we have been working. It's a large group. It's a very, very nice project, collaborative project with so many people from our department and our group and also other uh, external people who have been working on these like big checklists uh, mm. of all these factors that, you know, if you have a problem, let's say, quote unquote, problem of a species that it's like more challenging to establish, reestablish in a, in a restoration, which factors you should take into account and consider. And maybe, you know, we suggest to start always from a in-depth literature review. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there is someone who studied like that factor in a very similar species, uh, maybe in another region of the world, but, you know, same biology, same ecology of that species. So, and may, maybe they found something like that. It's useful to you. So you might want to, you know, check out or cross so something and focus your, your, your resources and time in other factors that are are more likely to be the responsible for your species to not appear or show up uh, at your site. You got your work cut out for you, but I do <laughs> enjoy hearing this aspect of sort of the back and forth because it's not just, you know, the scientists or the research side of it pursuing, you know, whatever's getting funded or whatever interests the lab at that time. It's this feedback because you have to learn what people are struggling with to know where the loose ends are. And I can see a situation where you get enough restoration practitioners in a region together, you're going to start finding those commonalities of like, okay, maybe it's the violets and perhaps some of the gentians or something like that where you're, okay, these are the ones we should probably start to aim because this is where we can make the most impact. 
and that excites me so much because again not downplaying science for the sake of science but if you can do this in a directed way that directly translates to on the ground action conservation restoration what have you uh, it's it's all the stronger and it's just this constant feedback between the people doing it and the people trying to figure out how to do it yeah 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 I can see why you went this route. <laughs> it's uh, it's tough, but the other side of this too, you know, seed dormancy can be frustrating for anyone listening that has ever tried to grow plants, myself included, where you go, I can't crack this solution on my own. I don't have the time or funds or, or the replicates I need to figure this out, but it can also be used to our advantage as like a whole as a society but restoration in general is is being able to store seeds you can leverage that dormancy in a big way so that you know if a species winks out today we have enough in seed banks or something uh do you care to like kind of inform a little bit about how you can use seed dormancy to our advantage when it comes to storing seeds for the future yeah sure like i mean you are touching like a such an important topic in plant conservation uh, which is like seed storage and seed, seed banking. So seeds are amazing because uh, because of their their phys- physiology and their potential longevity. We can store them for many many years. And but you know not all the seeds behave in the same way. <laughs> now if you're familiar with these terms, but we based on the seed storage behavior scientists have divided seeds into three categories, three main categories, because we know that life and biology is like a gradient. uh, (laughs) uh, Scale of of grace is not zero or one. Uh, So based on their, on the uh, storage behavior, we can recognize orthodox recalcitrant and intermediate seeds. And, the usual steps to store seeds uh, is to store them under very cold conditions, and that keeps seeds alive for uh, decades. And someone, based on some models, even says centuries. But in order to in order to freeze the seeds, we have to dehydrate them. Mm. We have to, so bring the internal. Uh, moisture of the seeds at very low percentages or at, at a, a pretty low level so that uh, once we have lower the seed moisture in the seeds, they can be frozen. Otherwise, the water becomes crystals of ice and, you know, damages the, the, the cells in, inside the seed. And also to keep, you know, this helps also to decrease the metabolism of, of the seed if we dehydrate them. Okay. But not all the seeds are tolerant to this step of the desiccation or dehydration. That's the most critical step. And based on that tolerance, we call them orthodox. So orthodox are seeds that can tolerate dehydration. And recalcitrant are those seeds that do not tolerate dehydration. And intermediate are all those seeds that you know tolerate in some at some level or you can dehydrate them and maybe then they tolerate the cold conditions only for a few years, not for uh, many, many years, et cetera. 
And we take advantage of these low metabolism and these like state of dormancy of the seeds to keep them in seed banks for many, many years. But there is so much science and research also behind uh, seed banking because sometimes, you know, we are still studying a lot about what happens to these seeds over the years in the seed banks. Because, oh, of course, we have these categories, these main categories of, you know, seed storage behavior, but not all the species behave in the exact same way. And especially if you have like rare species or, uh, I don't know, species from, you know, like, again, like unstable environments or environments with unpredictable conditions, et cetera, they might need like very specific requirements or different requirements because, uh, you know, what what's the point of throwing millions and millions of seeds in a, in a refrigerator if we don't do all the steps prior to that hmm. correctly? Uh, all these seeds are going to die and we're just wasting a lot of uh, resources uh, and time. Because then, you know, after 10 years, you say like, oh, yeah, I have those seeds for, you know, to restore that prairie or that habitat. Uh, but if we don't follow guidelines, protocols, or we don't keep on improving our practices of seed banking, those seeds maybe will die during the storage or through the storage. And so we're, we're not going to have these super important, precious natural resources to restore habitats in the future. Yeah, I can't imagine the pressure of sort of sitting back and realizing that at moments, but it just goes to show you the thought processes and the planning that have to go into this because you have to have someone constantly, you know, on a regular interval pulling these out just to even figure out what is the longevity of a given species? What conditions lead to lasting a decade versus two decades or more? Uh, and, And how can we avoid not doing that you know what's 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 the most simplest way to avoid catastrophe because yeah it would suck to be like yep we'll we'll just set it all and forget it until we need it no 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 no. this is a constant iterative process that requires a lot of scientific input yeah yeah well it's it's really it's really exciting to see that you know all over the world uh, there are so many organizations and institutes and practitioners are really thinking about about these and all all collaborating together to improve our efforts for plant conservation. This is super exciting because we yeah we are working for this common goal. You know the ultimate goal is to make conservation and also use and manage in a sustainable way our natural resources. Definitely. And thinking about it from sort of a restoration standpoint, you know, you can have sort of the the most extreme version where a species completely goes extinct, but we've got, you know, X amount of seeds in storage somewhere all the way up to, hey, we harvested these two years ago. We didn't have any sort of funds to do restoration this year, but next year we'll be able to do that. And so from a application slash scientific where they meet, uh, you know, you, you mentioned you have to dry the seeds down. They have to be stored in a particular way, at least with some semblance of like standards. Um, when you go to bring those out, is it a different process then for something that's been stored for potentially two decades versus something that was stored last year to get it back on the landscape? Or is it a, a total species by species scenario? 
Oh my God, I have never taken anything out of a seed bank that was <laughs> more than, let's say, two years in under storage. So wow. I, I, I don't know, but uh, usually, yeah, you have a process of uh, slow rehydration and we do these under control conditions like dehydration rooms where we have control conditions. Usually the standard conditions are 15% relative humidity and 15 Celsius degrees. 15, 15. It's hmm. easy to remember. <laughs> <laughs> that is difficult. And yeah, I, I can only imagine sort of those moments of stress, especially for like the restoration practitioners, because they're like, we have these vessels. We know what we want to get out of this, but it is kind of at the mercy of what nature is intending. But in terms of like application of the research, you know, when you think about how difficult some species can be to kickstart and jumpstart, is there a point in the restoration process where you say, maybe the species isn't meant to be here or the conditions aren't yet there? Or do you just kind of hit the drawing board again to figure out what it's going to take to coax them out of it? So I have to be honest uh, with my answer on these. You know, I don't have so many years of experience doing, you know, field restoration to to be, uh, I mean, to recognize if there is something missing in the research that I am doing right now, or mm -hmm. I've been, uh, or I did in the past years. So there is always something that you can think. Uh, maybe I should have, you know, investigated also that factor. And maybe that was the, the missing the missing piece or or dissolution. But honestly, I have never heard so far, but this is just my experience. I've never heard of uh, you know scientists giving up <laughs> because because they when if you give up, you give up really because you know you don't have much more, more time to spend on it. Unfortunately, sometimes it's like that, right? And we have you know funding for a project for you know a specific time frame and uh, at some point um for it's very sad but sometimes you have to kind of abandon some projects so honest uh, from my very uh, personal experience i never encountered a situation where i'm giving up and saying like okay this is not really meant to be <laughs> yeah that's encouraging to hear and of course you know, one person being saddled with this is unrealistic. And what you just outlined there is really a call to action that we need as many hands on this problem as possible because you yourself, nor should your colleagues be saddled with the weight of trying to figure all of this out. We don't have the time. The money is sometimes hard to come by. And, you know, the reality of day-to-day -day operations in whatever position you're in is sometimes you have to hit the stop button and move on. But this is where having a lot of people bringing different interests and different experiences to the table can really collectively make a better suite of information for people to operate from. Because you said it yourself perfectly. I'm the same way. I don't know a single person that would just give up on a species for any other reason than they just don't have the time or funding to do it. So, you know, the more people come into the table trying to figure this thing out, the better off we're going to be, the better off the science is going to be, and the better off you know, the restoration mm -hmm. process can be. Mm -hmm. In fact, let me tell you that, you know, science is absolutely uh, critical, like advancing, you know, our knowledge, scientific knowledge on native plants and native habitats. But 
in conservation. Another critical aspect is uh, collaborating and creating partnerships uh, and collaborations. Um, sometimes you have, let's say, a neighbor, <laughs> and a neighbor organization, like not too many miles away from you, doing something very similar to you, and you don't even know that. But when you find it out, the more natural thing to think for me, it's like, let's collaborate and let's solve the problem together or let's be complementary if, you know, our skills and our, our abilities complement each other. And this is another, for me, it's another very, very important uh, aspect uh, in conservation. I mean, it's not just for me. It's just that I have like a, a big passion uh, about creating collaborations and partnerships in conservation because I think that's the way, that's the way to go. Uh, sharing experiences. So I am. I have been for five years on the board of the International Network for Seed-Based Restoration, and I'm telling you this right now because it's very relevant to you know collaborating and exchanging uh, experiences. So the International Network for Seed-Based Restoration, that I also call INSR or someone calls INSER. <laughs> is a thematic section of the Society for Ecological Restoration that was created in 2016. And since 2017, I'm part of the board. And actually very, very soon, I'm gonna leave the board because I reached the maximum oh, wow. number I can serve on the board. Nice. Uh, but you know, our, our goal, uh, we are people like on the board and there are people from all over the world and uh, our working space is our website uh, and we uh, uh, one of our main goals is to you know bring people together experts stakeholders uh, scientists restoration practitioners whoever works with native seeds for restoration we want to bring them together because we are all working in slightly different aspects of seed-based restoration. But what we have learned from our group is that sharing, um, it's very important uh, for, you know, learn from each other, from, you know, someone's failure. Maybe it's going to, you know, uh, help you learn or someone's success as well, right? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. This is just that. It's very important. Not to mention only the successes, but also, you know, fa failures are very important to learn from. Definitely. And, you know, since 2016, now we have like, I think, 900 members from all over the world. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really exciting. And I hope it's, I, I guess it's pretty useful to hold the people globally working and interested in, in this, in this topic. Yeah, my God, uh, it's so encouraging to hear that. And I mean, playing on failure and playing on strengths, uh, successes is so important because both of those are teaching moments. You just have to know, you know, how to look at that. And instead of being discouraged by it, you know, use it, talk to people, figure out who's done it, where and where those, you know, every failure is a, a data point. Every success is a data point, right? 
But, you know, the other part of that, too, is is the idea that, you know, again, no one has a monopoly on this process. No one by themselves can make this all work, especially when you start thinking beyond just your immediate region. And I can only imagine the contribution of people that aren't necessarily scientists, aren't necessarily restoration practitioners in any big way, but, you know, just casual growers at home that happen to like one species or a couple that they've just focused on. Imagine the wealth of knowledge that are locked up in just, you know, hobby growers that could potentially spell success for a whole species or restoration project. Yes, that's absolutely true. And something that I say uh, when I have the chance to talk to the new cohort of students coming at the Chicago Botanic Garden, or I had the opportunity to actually give a class in these past three years, of course, about seed biology and conservation. Uh, but something that I tell them, they're not necessarily all uh, working with seeds in their projects, uh, but for sure, each one of them work, works with plants. And um, sometimes, you know, they have like some uh, field component uh, in, their, in their research. Sometimes it's just lab. But something that I suggest is to go out and try to find local naturalists or experts or botanists who don't necessarily publish what they know and what they find. And, but they are like such an amazing resource of knowledge. And like, I'm not, I'm not a very good plant. Uh, I mean, my plant ID skills are not especially because in the last seven years you know in Italy in Italy I was good <laughs> I kept on moving and moving and moving and every time there is a new local flora so it's hard work but at the same time I'm not um, my plant ID skills are not great but I know in, in this region I know a few people who are amazing botanists uh, and they know so much about not just how to identify plants, but also how to collect their seeds, what to look in order to quickly identify that plant. What does mean if you see that plant about, about the soil or the geology of that place? And so there is a, so much knowledge that it's not necessarily found in papers or on the web, but it's so important. Yeah. And I mean, you can totally correct me if I'm off base on this, but I would imagine what we don't know about species far outweighs what we do know about them. So the areas for which, like you said, even if people aren't publishing, but impacts can be made, advancements can be made. It, it's a it's a wide open field, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why these natural history knowledge uh, sort of things really gets me excited because it's this perfect moment to say, you know, go outside, look at things, learn a few plants, bring them home, try to grow them in and around where you live. You never know what kind of impacts you can make. And, and you know, what's rare or what's common today might not be common tomorrow. And we're going to need all of the knowledge we can possibly get on this subject to have any semblance of putting the pieces back together. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Uh, now that you mentioned, you just mentioned like what is here today, it might not be here tomorrow. And that made me think, of course, about, you know, this big problem that we have, uh, climate change. Right. Uh, we're also working in a frame of 
big, big climatic changes. So getting back to restoration, sometimes we try to understand if, you know, something is not reestablishing again, because maybe the climate, uh, even like that slight change in temperatures might affect the establishment of a plant species. It's heavy. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where we're probably in the same age group. I don't think things are the same as when I was a kid. I've seen changes in my lifetime. And when you think of the age of something like uh, even a short-lived tree that's 80 to 100 years old, Mm -hmm. you know, what happens today is not predictive necessarily of the conditions its seedlings are going to face throughout the future. And the more we understand about it, the more we can make better predictions, better, um, you know, sort of prescriptions for how best to treat a chunk of land, uh, you know, steward a land into a future that's going to only be defined by accelerated Mm -hmm. rates of everything you just said. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, you know, of course, in conservation restoration, we are kind of like uh, shaping our strategies. If we think about, you know, seed-based restoration, where you need to source seeds from a donor population and use that uh, in a recipient site. We are thinking a lot about how to source these seeds, being aware of climate changes and how those ecotypes might thrive better in a different climate, a slightly different climate or a slightly different latitude than another. So it's all, you know, connected to collecting seeds that will be a good source uh, in view of like some climatic projection in the future. Now that's encouraging. Yeah. And so with that in mind, where where do you see your kind of direction going for your career? I mean, what do you what do you kind of hope to move into, you know, in the coming years? Obviously, you know, it's the it's at the vagaries of the job market and you you kind of go where the money is, but at the same time what are you excited about, I guess, for the future of your career specifically and where you see yourself? Because you span so many different ways of, of attacking the seeds and, and restoration conservation side of plants. Yeah. So actually, you know, you find me in a very specific uh, moment. It's a, it's a moment of transition. I am going to start soon this new exciting position uh, the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, uh, working for the National Program of Native Seed Collection, the SOS, Seeds of Success Program, led by the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. And let me tell you that I'm so excited that I got this job that I'm not thinking too, too far away uh, I hope, you know, having jumped in the last uh, seven, eight years, having jumped uh, every two years from position to position, contract to contract, uh, now I would like to think that this is going to be a more, you know, long-term position. And it, it's also the, I guess, the job, I don't want to say too, too much, but I think it's like the job of my dreams. Like, <laughs> No, working in conservation and specifically to restore grasslands in the southeastern U.S., uh, starting from seeds, from local ecotypes, and thinking also, you know, looking at this opportunity to make seed collection as a pivotal uh, activity 
to and bring in, you know, volunteers, uh, bring in members of, you know, uh, local communities and maybe also create opportunities uh, of employment and training for members of local communities and particularly for members of uh, historically marginalized communities. So I envision these program, the SOS Southeast program, to start from seed collections, but to bring in and to enable many, many more uh, activities that are, you know, related to improving also the connections and the relationships between human and natural resources. Wow, that is fantastic. And I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of everything SGI is doing, and they are so lucky to have your expertise on staff. But I, I think it's fantastic. And what better way to get people, you know, the communities that rely on these habitats, like you said, for life, whether they realize it or not, get them back engaged, thinking about nature, thinking about it from a plant-based perspective, which really sets up the rest of the ecosystem, not, uh, you know, being too biased there. But yeah, it's seeds are such a fantastic way to bridge those gaps and get people back involved, getting them engaged in habitat and thinking of conservation. So I, I'm excited for what the future holds for you. I'm, I, I, I really commend your efforts, and I'm, I'm happy to see you get in a position like that. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, but yeah, uh, I'm so, so excited that, you know, uh, I think this component of trying to get people um, more or better connected with nature as a component of my, you know, being a conservationist, uh, it really, I don't know, kind of complete my, uh, make me feel complete and make me feel very happy just doing it. That's great. And yeah, you can't do it alone. So what better than to bring the community in on it, right? I mean, let's let's all yeah. have a hand in this. We all have a future on this planet and we better make it a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's excellent. If you have any uh, contacts or information you'd like to share, uh, obviously I will share any links you send with me. But if people want to find out more about you, more about your work, or just keep kind of keep tabs as, as your career develops, where do you recommend they go looking? Uh... <laughs> Now I have a profile on the Chicago Botanic Garden uh, website, uh, but I guess soon I'm going to have like, uh, you know, a page or a profile on the SGI, the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative website. Um, I don't have a personal website. I should make one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have one. So that's okay. You're a busy person and those things can come on board at any point in time. But uh, yeah, if you think of anything between now and when this episode comes out, just send it to me and I will add any links you want uh, to help people find out more or just kind of get engaged. Okay. Um, but yeah, thank oh, you again super. for taking super. time. Yeah, I know you're a very busy person. You got a lot on your plate. Uh, moving is never fun or easy, but yeah. I think again, you're, you're, you're finding yourself in a great place and a, and a great organization. So thank you again for taking time oh, to talk with us. You're thanks. doing amazing work. Thanks Matt for really, for contacting me. I mean, uh, that's, it's been like super, super exciting, like a honor. Oh. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know like, uh, how I performed, uh, like I'm not great talking in public i'm very scripted (laughs) (laughs) it's okay the passion is there and you're doing great stuff feel free to add it as much as you want 
no worries. Uh, you don't have anything to worry about. It's been fantastic talking with you, and I thank you for sharing your passion for seeds with us. And, uh, you know, again, keeping people thinking about this is so vital. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for your work and making us talk. <laughs> <laughs> great interviewer. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. And I hope it's not too painful, but uh, it's only as good as people like you. So again, thank you. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Bye. All right. That wraps up yet another fantastic discussion. I thank Dr. Davidis for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I wish him all the best in his upcoming adventures. Of course, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode, as well as all other episodes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to support it, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, where you can earn yourself things like stickers, access to bonus episodes, and even a producer credit. In fact, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big, big thank you goes out to Sylvia and Levi. Both of them signed up at the producer credit level, which means they are doing all they can to help make sure this show stays up and running. Of course, I thank all of my patrons that support the show each and every month. I couldn't be doing it without them. You can also support the show through stickers by purchasing my book wherever books are sold or picking up some of our customizable apparel. As always, those links are in the show notes for each episode as well. But that is it for me this week. Hang in there, get outside if you can, and be good to each other. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.